0: Welcome to Everyday Greatness, a nice little show proudly brought to you by major sponsor ARA Group, one of Australia's greatest supporters of community projects. Everyday Greatness is a show hosted by a real human being, talking to some real people about real human issues that will help make you feel proud again of simply being a good solid Joe Bag of Donuts. Here's your host, Barnaby Howarth.
1: Welcome to Everyday Greatness, and thanks for listening. This is a show designed to celebrate the greatness inside everyday people. So grab a drink, kick your feet up, and settle in. Before I start today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. I think honouring our Indigenous Australians is more important than just reading from a generic, impersonal script. So I'd like to honour our traditional owners from the heart. I love being an Australian. So I'd like to honour those who came before us, those we share the land with today, and those who follow us. As a white Australian, I'm flat out embarrassed at some of the things that have happened in this country in the past. So I'd like to acknowledge that I feel horrible for any pain that's been caused. But I'd also like to acknowledge how beautiful Australian Aboriginal culture, your past, your place in today's society, and your future are. Thank you for sharing your country with us. The example parents set children should be defined by the accumulation of all of the small goodness we put back into the world. Kissing your partner when they get home, telling your kids you're proud of them, or going to visit your cousin just to say good day. Those small things can shape how your children grow up to become more than anything else in the world. If you think you're a bad parent because you haven't bought your kids a car, passed on the family business, or taken the family on a trip to Disneyland, you're kidding yourself. If you flat out love your children and tell them every day that you do so, you're giving them everything they need to make wise decisions on their own knowing that their mum and dad will have their back if they fall. My guests today, my neighbour, Renu Randev, and my mate, Phil Ledlin, are two parents setting an example of how the accumulation of the small goodness you put back into the world can lead to great things you're really proud of. And if you're doing that, you can lift your head up, push your shoulders back, and be proud of yourself. Men these days are being encouraged to be vulnerable, to be more in touch with their feelings, and even to cry a little bit. If the phrase, it takes a, child, it takes a village to raise a child, is true, then I'm, I couldn't be prouder that one of, my, one of the people in my village is my next guest, my neighbour, Renu Randev. Renu believes in men hugging and crying She used to insist her two boys gave her a hug before they went to school every day. For tough old school Aussie blokes, for tough old school Aussie blokes who think that hugging and crying make men soft mummies boys, Renu's two sons are strong, confident young men and the only thing they've got different by being more in touch with their feelings is that they're more empathetic than those who are raised to think that crying is a sign of weakness. If it does indeed take a village to raise a child, then as I try and help my wife raise my 14-year-old stepdaughter, I couldn't be more proud that my neighbor, Renu Randev, is in my village. And I'd like to welcome Renu to Everyday Greatness. Renu, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you, Bandi.
1: Tell me about the family you grew up with as a little girl in India.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm from north of India. We lived in a big house with extended family. My parents, my grandparents, my three uncles, three aunties, and even my 10 cousins, we all lived together. The house setup was very interesting. We had uh, three kitchens. That means all three auntie uncles, their families, they had owned their own kitchen, which was in a, sort of in a, in a, in a way that um, uh, we could still see each other. And good thing about that was that um, if anybody cooked simple everyday food, that's fine. They are, you know, running their own show. But when if there's anything special cooked, that means we're all going to share. And there was the beauty of being living with the family together. And my sort of, uh, because when I was only six year old, my father passed away. And that's another thing that uh, my mother was left with myself and my brother who was only three years old. In India, I don't know if you're aware, um, some companies, some good companies have a system that if your spouse dies, they give uh, uh, the person who's left behind a job. And my mom was given a job by the Life Insurance Corporation of India, um, a job job to start with so that she can financially look after herself. Although we were lucky enough that we had uh, agriculture land, which thanks to again extended family and their help my uncle elder uncle he looked after our land gave us all our share out of the land whatever we he got we got our share so that means financially we were surviving very well and also when mom was um, mom had to go to work and who's going to look after the kids imagine that but that was not the issue my elder auntie she was looking after my 3 year old brother and myself like I was going to school, but he was still at home feeding him and cleaning him everything. She did like his, her own child. And I still sometimes think about her. Who She's dead now, but I still think about her and I think, wow, what a, what a great lady she was out of no self, you know, like not, nothing to think about like, oh, what will I gain out of it? No, it was all our selfless work of her, which has helped us to today uh, where we are.
1: It sounds like a beautiful family setup. Yes. So tell me about how your the family you're bringing up today in Australia compares to that family you grew up in in India.
0: Yeah, here as uh, you know, we are uh, we were not so much extended here, but here I have uh, at the moment I've got my husband, vidu I've got two sons, Varun and Nikhil, and of course not to forget our dog Avi. <laughs> and Vidu, um, my husband, he has. Um, where after his secondary education, I don't know if you're aware of that. he has um he went to UK to study, and that was also sponsored by his his um auntie uncles to he could stay with them. But the reason he went there was through the um, system of Edinburgh award. He went over there to get the award and lucky enough to achieve that and um, and he was he he was given the award in the booking palace. he was very proud of that. When he reached there, he decided to stay there to study. After study, he didn't want to go back to India because his only child and parents were there in India. But he found um, the exposure to the developed country, he could not find his future in India. So he decided to migrate to Australia in 1991. He stayed, he was working here, he went to go back and forth, but I think he always wanted to marry somebody from India. As um, in in my time in those days, it was quite usual to have arranged marriage. So I was introduced to him in 1994 by my cousin who lives in Australia, and uh, so we got engaged in January 94, got married in September 94, and uh, in those days again the visa was so easy I could come here with him to Australia state after the after the um, our marriage which was one way good that parents feel that they feel relieved that daughter who is married to this uh, man, uh, she's going with him, not left behind while he's gone away after suddenly getting married, but also very hard to leave your parents and coming to with a new man you don't know much and uh, new country. When I came to Australia, we were in um, he was staying in Bellevue Hill, which was quite different than where I had lived in India. and it was good like he was sharing and another thing was he was sharing with uh, some friends, which was uh, shocked to me to see some sort of relationship, different relationship ideas in Australia. But I think I'm used to now seeing what is the real world here. We did rent around a few places, but at our last, we decided to move to Esquith. It's a beautiful place. And uh, we have a lot of greenery because my husband always wanted to have a place where there are trees because he is from up in Himalayas, from India. And uh, we, other reason for coming to uh, Esquith was um, the schools. That was my concern as a mother. I knew that we we're going to have kids. I, that was sort of, when you grow up in India, you know, as a girl, I am getting married. I am going to have kids. It's not that. There was no choice, not thinking even that I'm not going to have kids or I'm not going to get married. Um, so for me, the priority was uh, I remember looking in the newspaper, checking the schools before even having the kids, that we are the good schools where we can move. So we moved here in 1997. Then in 1998, my father-in-law joined us um, because my mother-in-law had died in early 1998 in India, so she could never join us in Australia. He came and lived with us for about 10 years, but he died, unfortunately, because of dementia. And um, so that was another thing uh, which made me to decide to leave my job. I was working for Commonwealth Bank, and I decided to leave my job because we didn't want to put our father in the nursing home because we thought that's not the place for parents to go, but that's how we were brought up. Yeah, So, and my mother also actually um, joined us in 1998, end of 1998, to help us with uh, my younger son, because he was only a few months old, so that I could go back to work. Because at that time, to, because we had a house to pay the mortgage, we both needed to work. But si- since... Then we found that it was not fair to our mother. She has worked all our life. Then she is again stuck with us. That's how I thought. Mum was okay. But um, I decided to leave my job because we were lucky enough with with those jobs to survive. Um, We thought, okay, we have to see the difference between needs and wants. That's, I think, my main point, that uh, if we can fulfill our needs, that was enough and I can spend. we can spend time with kids. So mom moved to Melbourne in uh, 2000 because my brother had uh, his twins and now they needed more of a help than me. So she went there. So now a lot have happened. Like if I start telling you all about my life, we will be sitting here for, <laughs> for maybe four days. A lot happened since then. And now I've got my elder son. He is... Um, um, he is studying medicine and is um, working for St Vincent Hospital, and the younger son is completing his chemical and biomed engineering. And that's and we both with our dog are we still in Esquith, and the kids are have moved temporarily to city.
1: Beautiful. Tell me a little bit more about your boys. Did they ever complain when their mummy insisted they hug her, hug them before they went to school when they were young?
0: No, they didn't because. Uh, I think they always thought that uh, it is important. They did not complain about mom. Did you know that I don't know why kids uh, in the school or mommy's hug they push them away, and I think they they felt the need of it because we always talk to them about it. We always hug them. They will give a quick hug quickly and um, go. And even till today, you won't believe, mom, bra- bra- that uh, they they fully believe anytime we meet and greet. We uh, we hug each other, and some of their friends also. They have passed on this message to the friends. How important for us in today's world and in ever time for us human beings to hug each other. So I am I'm, I'm very proud that they have kept this with them, and they sometimes they believe even not just hugging for a second, hugging, and they even have uh, you. It's very interesting what they have said to me. Mom, you know what? We have found a better way of hugging I So what do you mean? He said, Mom, there are different types of hugging. I said, what? Mom, you know, if you are tired, one person who is, uh, needs more can put their shoulder on your shoulder. But if you are hugging for just for each other, you put arms, one arm down, one arm up. So I just laughed. And I said, I'm so happy. I'm so proud of you guys. Who, you know, you have embraced it so beautifully.
1: That's a very good joke, Renna. You've embraced hugging. Yeah. You're very clever. <laughs> so, growing up as a girl in India sounds like it was a totally different experience to growing up as a girl in Australia. Tell me about why your uncle wouldn't buy you a bike back in India.
0: Yeah, you know, it is quite different. Mostly boils down to the relative freedom given to women in India. In India, they think that uh, they're very concerned about the well being of women. Mostly they believed. And it's very common in India. They believe that it is not for safe safe for the girls to be alone going anywhere. So they, it was parents' duty to ensure their safety. So that's, that's what was, they thought it was their responsibility. Sometimes kids found that it was too much because girls, when you're young girls, you don't understand the difference between you being a girl and your brothers being a boy. They think, oh my God, why he's allowed and I'm not allowed. But uh, I think that's what happened. Uh, in it was normally in every family when it comes to bike that I think for the parents they never thought riding a bike was important for a girl because it was important. It was mostly used by men to go from point A to point B. It was not just for pleasure, so they didn't think that it was uh, uh, it was really important for you to learn how to ride a bike. I remember complaining about to my mom. mom Dad, uncle didn't allow me to buy to get the bike. Oh, mom and mom would just say, "Look, um, you have to. We have to listen to him because she she knew that it is important to um, listen to the elders." So she wanted to say, "Okay, if uncle doesn't want it, you can't have it," and that's it.
1: So tell me about the phrase I mentioned at the start of this interview: "It takes a village to raise a child." How does an Australian village or community? compared to an Indian village
0: or community? Uh, when I think of India, Indian community or Indian village, I, you know, in India, it's very different. It's like where you are living, which village you are living. It's like when we talk about village um, and community, it plays a big role. Community is mainly, it It differs in different places. Like I am from north of India. and in north of India, mostly we thought our community is the, vicinity you are in sort of in a sort of you can say in a certain perimeter and I do know in some parts now coming meeting other people that part of India where community is even uh, separated on the basis of the caste system as well okay we belong to this community that community but I haven't been brought up like in that manner so in um, for us it was community where Okay, all our neighbors, they're part of our community. Even even it does not the neighbors in the close vicinity, even the further, like almost whole town, knew you. So you have to respect everyone. You will respect the decision made by elders. And sometimes even, even in your not only the elders of your family, even in the surroundings, even if there's an old man living in the neighborhood and he tells you to, you when you're playing outside, he tells you to go. Look, it's too hot. Go inside, and you will respect that. And that's how I think now. When I look back and I think, yeah, that was amazing. Like as a child, you don't realize that what is important for you or not. It's too dark. Go back home now, and you you and they because they have experience. They know when dark it's dark. It is dark now, and it is important for you to be home because the electricity wasn't. It's not like Australia that we have uh, all these. Um, lights around all the streets are lit up streets are so you know some streets were very dark even you get scared yourself walking around there um and i do remember i think i it's it's if i compare to australia more like our community but i think it was more like you know we have aboriginal community here they are working together they move together i think that's how when i was brought up there we had that's how i would compare to indian community
1: Tell me about the difference the different meaning of family does family mean something different in India than it does in Australia uh,
0: In India family meaning can easily be cut into two different I don't know like I think some when we when we always said family we said like oh this is my family and that included your parents your grandparents your parents in laws aunties uncles all that was you normally would say my family. And it's extended through some generations as well. Or oh, this is my family. Anybody you meet and and they, as long as they belong to your family from even far relation, you say, this is my family. But then, that's one way we say family. Other way we said family as well as well when um, uh, you know, in your neighbors, when you're close-knit neighbors, you are introducing to somebody, oh, this auntie, she's Oh, they are like our family. We are like family. Okay, just just don't worry about it. You can tell us anything in front of us. So that's how family was word was used as well. So I don't remember using family word more differently. Like I know here we say if you go to the church, you say, Oh, these people we we you know and going to church together, we are family. Um because I lived in a small town. So even if you are going to a local temple anyway, you knew everybody. So are, that's, that's like your village anyway. So we did not use the word like, oh, this is my family.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about your family. What are you proudest of in the men in your family, your husband and your boys?
0: You know, with my, uh, when you take about proudest, something my husband never liked. And I was talking to him one day, and he said, the moment people say proud, he said, no, we shouldn't be proud of anything. And I said, what do you mean? He said, no, we should be, <laughs> <laughs> he said, we should be happy about it. We should be contented about it, but not proud. But anyway, yes, um, my, w- the main thing I, if you ask me, I'm proudest, but men in my family is they are there for me all the time. And other thing, which is very important, I found is that they respect women. And I remember my husband telling me the story about, and the same with my, actually, it goes up to my even father-in-law, which I would love to share the story that my husband said that his friends were coming from UK to Mumbai in India. And he, out of respect, uh, sent a message to dad that those days there was no phone, it was telegram. And he said, a telegram to dad, dad, the girls are, two girls are coming. Am I allowed to have them at my place to stay? And dad said, look, I believe they are more secure to stay with you than staying in a hotel. So that, that gives, gave me, you can imagine that how you feel even passes, you know, like you go, oh my God, that's how much his father had faith in him. And the same faith I have in my boys, the girls are more secure with them. They respect the women. And other thing I would say is, uh, which also makes me proud of them is that they're very independent. They help me with all the jobs around the house. And they are the one who has, especially my boys, actually, they have taught me now how to sit down. Mom, you don't have to always work. We are in the kitchen. So they work with dad sometime. They make me sit and they go with dad in the kitchen. They will make a special breakfast. Mom, today, just sit down learn to sit down. You don't have to work all So That is, I'm really proud of them.
1: Renu Randev, I really enjoyed hearing your pearls of wisdom about your family. Thank you so much for joining me on Everyday Greatness.
0: Thank you, Bambi.
1: Thank you, Renu. Now I'd like to introduce my next guest, Phil Ledlin. If you think nobody will notice, if you pay for dinner for your family, look a man in the eye when you shake his hand, or ask a mate how their kids are going at school, you're probably right. But they sure as hell will notice if you do. My next guest today, Phil Ledlin, is an old school good man. Phil loves his wife, takes pride in his family home, and asks interesting questions in conversation. If you wanted to be an uncomplicated good person, You'd do well to follow Phil Ledlin's example. Phil has been a school principal at two Sydney schools. He can hold down an interesting conversation with any person on the street, and he's a home home handyman extraordinaire. But Phil has taken the hard road to get to where he is today. Phil suffers from severe anxiety. He's been in self-imposed lockdown since before lockdowns were cool. Phil puts good back into the world through the accumulation of the small goodness he does every day. Phil sets a good example for people to follow, and I'm privileged to say that Phil Ledland joins me now on Everyday Greatness. Phil, welcome. Barnes, hi. That was
2: a very exhausting and very humbling introduction. I don't know if, if I can honestly say I've lived up to all of that, but I'll take it and say thank you.
1: Yeah, you're an exhausting person. Don't worry. <laughs> Now, Phil, you are an old-school good man. You're a good, solid human being. You love your fam. You love your family, and you take great pride in your family home. Did you ever have aspirations to be great, or was just trying to be a good man enough?
2: Barnes, um, I, I had a great example set for me by my family. But um, I, I'll be honest with you and say that with Leanne, my wife, um, when we first got married, we actually said we were going to just lead a very simple life, and that, that involved aspirations we had of not even having a television um, and, and also having a veggie patch. We had a farm up at uh, near Seal Rocks near Bulladilla and all of that just came crashing down when kids came along and you had to pay the bills and I, I, I have had a journey which um, I didn't anticipate.
1: What did your own parents teach you about the importance of just trying to be a good human being?
2: look I, I was blessed i'm one of six and my parents were absolutely fabulous um that they, they always instilled in in me and certainly my five siblings to, to have a capacity to never really go past something that was not right and not do something about it and that they were very involved um in outreach so their faith was important politics were so it was important so it was always about developing us within us as children just a capacity to really think of others but 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 interestingly they actually did something quite negative that became a real positive for me and that was um and i heard you mention it earlier when you talked about you used the word affection my parents were not affectionate and my father never ever said to me um, he loved me Um, however there was a closeness um that was just so important and still is with mum who's alive but but my wife and I made a pact when we got married. We said, we will be affectionate and we will be very affectionate to our kids, and we, we've maintained that. And I know you love it. You love it, the importance of you kissing your wife when you get home. It's it's gold. So, yes, they did teach me a lot, um, but they, um, you know, paradoxically taught me something so important. Um, da- Dad was in boarding school at the age of four. Cop that. I mean, fair income That's tough. So, yeah. That's it, Barnes. I mean, I, I'm blessed. I have led a charmed life. I've had to work my clacker off, but it's I have <laughs> been lucky.
1: Boarding school at four sounds tough. <laughs> what were your own personal dreams and goals when you were growing up as a kid? What did you want to be in life?
2: Oh, much the same as I said earlier, Barnes. I didn't really have aspirations to be anyone um, particularly special. I I, I didn't Aspire certainly to be a, a great leader of any um, company or any community, but it, it was necessity that that, that that led led me to where I ended up on my journey. And when I say necessity, for kids, you've got to pay the bills, and um, you know, just keeping up with things in in Sydney, it, it's tough. So. Um, so really, I, I didn't have those aspirations. Always, always valued the importance of looking out for others, but um, there was certainly no drive in me to go, you know, climbing any corporate ladder.
1: Part of that journey you, you were on, Phil, you ended up becoming a school principal at just thirty-seven years of age. Did you feel ready and equipped to handle such a huge responsibility, or were you just faking it till you made it?
2: Look, look, Barnes, I, I was. Really quite frightened um, at the whole prospect, and i it, it was it was a crazy journey. I was assistant principal at a school, and the principal left. So people looked to me and they tapped me on the shoulder. The system said, oh, "I think Phil will be able to pull this off. And so I went through the um through through the motions, but the whole time, I knew that I really lacked the confidence and the capacity to to really pull this off, but but I'll be honest with you, Barnes an interesting thing is and i've reflected on this our, our ego is so powerful sometimes and it's exciting when someone says to you you can do something and it is um <laughs> it, it's something that really sucked me right in so so i i i applied i got the job and interestingly barnes when the um letter went out to the community it was the days before you shot an email. It went out and it said, oh, Phil Ledlin's going to be the principal, and I'm sure some families thought, oh, my gosh, this is terrifyingly horrible, and some probably thought, yes, this will be great. But, Barnes, at about 5.30, when everyone had left the school grounds, the cleaner, Jan, um, she'd been at the school 20 years, and she'd seen quite a few principals come and go. She came and she knocked on the door, and she asked me, she said, could she talk? And I said, Jan, what's up? And she was quite worried, and she said, "Phil, I'm really concerned that you're not going to be able to cope, um, and you're you're not going to be able to deal with this role." And um, I, of course, dismissed it, and um, we, we were close friends, so I didn't take any offence. But she she said. Things like, "Phil, oh, you're just too kind for this role." Anyway, I I'm, she left, and, and Barnes. I'll be honest with you, I, I collapsed, and um, it really, really frightened me that she could see through me. And she was one of the few that knew I was able to um, re- really perform way above my capacity. So, so Barnes. Short answer is no, I was not ready, and, and nor was I well prepared.
1: And just in case you weren't ready enough, and you were already nervous starting out as school principal, tell me how your first newsletter went.
2: I, I, I often think about this, Barnes, because at, at the time I thought it was the end of the world when um, when, when this was published. And but basically, I, I spent probably a good good part of two weeks writing this newsletter. And, and in a newsletter, you write something. In your cover letter something relatively intelligent about education behavior or something interesting so i had a cracker i was really really pleased with what i put um, down on paper i'd been to my mother and had it checked how good's that 37 year old me goes to mum and checks it out she checks the grammar and ma- my mother actually said it was really good now that is saying something because she's just such an intelligent woman and she's a beautiful beautiful writer anyway so i had numerous other people check it and it came the day to um, to to put this out to the community. So I we emailed had just come in. So I emailed the letter to the secretary, um, Mary and Mary recognized when it came in I'd forgotten to write dear parents. So I'd written this lovely letter. So Mary thought, I better write dear parents. So de- 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 writes it in. Anyway, um the newsletter gets put in everyone's bag to take home, and it's now about five to three. Bill has it three. And in comes um, Mary Ann. She says, Phil, I'll just give you a copy of your first newsletter. And, of course, I sat back, cup of coffee, really proud, and I know you'd be proud of some things, Barnes. You've written a book. It's fabulous, and you know that true, and it lands in your lap. Now, this is up there with, um, with, with that experience. So I pick it up, and there on the front page it says, Dear Parents, And the word parents is spelt incorrectly. (laughs) Barnes, I I was mortified and and, and I was, I I just, I I couldn't bring myself to go outside. I felt a failure because of this one small thing. And um, it, it, Marianne, um, Realised what had happened. She came in. She was so upset. She actually had um, tears in her eyes. And she's a beautiful, beautiful lady. And I, of course, just fobbed it off and pretended I wasn't worried. No, it's okay. It's, but really, deep down, um, it, it, it really it did, did collapse me. And, and it was things like that throughout my entire career as a principal that I, I didn't share with anyone. I didn't. I didn't really let on. The way this was affecting me, and the only person that really had a capacity to understand what was going on um, was my wife, Leanne. And um, you know, I, even then, I had to be very careful about sharing things with with Lee because she's such a protective and loving um, uh, woman that she she um she, she she would have been devastated if she knew you know half the things that went went on and half the things I dealt with because. She she was always worried about me and um, my capacity to deal with the difficult uh, challenges that come with the role of a school
1: principal. It sounds like a very unnerving start to being principal. Yeah, it was a shocker. Can you imagine if you picked up your book right? It comes down. I'm sure you
2: remember the moment when the publishers said, here you go, Barnes, here's a copy, first edition. Imagine if they made a typo in the, um, in the title.
1: <laughs> anyway. <laughs> it's an interesting yeah. one. But
2: really, Barnes, I think as I look back now as a 57-year-old, it, it's just so unimportant and, and it Barnes, Lee has been mentioning to me lately, like she, she knew I was even really worried about doing this interview with you, and she, Lee has this thing she's been saying to me lately and she says, grab a piece of paper, and Barnes, I don't know if you've got a bit of paper in front of you, but if you do, do it if you can't pretend, but draw on mm-hmm. that blank piece of paper. In the middle of the paper, just make and draw, draw a little dot in the middle of the paper, the blank page. Mm-hmm. Now, my question to you is, what do you see on that page? A circle with a dot in the middle. Right. Now, that is the problem I had with my entire career where my career is the blank page and there's this tiny little dot in there and that tiny little dot is the word parents that was spelt wrong. It's so insignificant and (laughs) unimportant. Look at all that beautiful space around it, whether it's the success that we've had in life, the things we've got to look forward to, the people we love, whatever it is. Too often people like me who who, who are struggling with, um, and I've got to say it, it's hard for me to say this, who are struggling with mental illness, we focus on that dot and that is the thing that stifles us and stops us from moving forward. So I've got my wife to thank for reminding me
1: about that little exercise. It's very well said. And Leanne, you should become a counsellor. Dean. So do yes. you think, Bill, well, speaking of the example that he's set for children, do you think it's enough as a school principal to just try and set a good example of being a good human being? Or do you need a bit of fire and brimstone yelling instruction and harsh punishment? Uh, look, c- certainly
2: we, we don't need the harsh punishment. I, I, I think I made some mistakes even as a parent with the way I disciplined um, my, my children. You, you, you mentioned earlier, Barnes, and it's so powerful. Children need to know that you're proud of them. Whether it's the school children or your own children, and, and I think one of the most—not one of the most—I'll go out on a limb and say the most powerful thing you can say to your child, or indeed a child you're teaching, is "You ready for it?" I'm always—I'm proud of you. Now, anyone who says "I'm proud of you," and if you say it in a really powerful, sincere way, that can melt a kid. It can get their shoulders back. It can lift them to a space. It tells them that they're loved. And, and and I think when we tell someone we're proud of them, that leads to the next step, which I think is affection. And you mentioned that also at the beginning of this um, this particular um, in, in interview you talked about it, you said and and I even mentioned my my mum and dad were not very affectionate, but but I would like to um mention that my mother is now in a nursing home, and she is now one of the most beautifully affectionate. People and as a mother, I'm so so pleased that I'm enjoying an affection and, and and closeness that that I never really got to experience whilst I was growing up. So 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 children need to know that you're proud. They need the affection. But here's the bit you mentioned about fire and brimstone. No, no, they don't need that. But they need tough love. And, and I think you know we 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 can't we can't be really covering. The butts of our kids, and, and really just watching out for them all the time. I, I think that, that that's where we fail. And and there's a time when kids need to hear the word no. Um, and 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 I think if we don't use that word um, at the right time, our, our kids will, will will fail, and they won't be resilient. Um, in, in, and interestingly, Barnes, my son Christopher, uh, a few years ago, he came to me and he said, Dad, I just want to thank you for not giving us everything. And it was really blunt in the way he said it. I mean, don't want you mean. He said, oh, "Dad, you didn't give us everything. And he wasn't just talking about. Um, well, he was talking a little bit about material possessions, but he was also just in the discussion we had afterwards. I remember really fondly the way he spoke about. We, we didn't do everything for them. We 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 just let them get about their business, and and we didn't micromanage their lives. And uh, it, admittedly, we didn't have a lot of money to throw around, so perhaps that was really just a bit of a fluke that that happened. But I just think um, if and I, I caution, I caution people very strongly about giving too much to your kids. Um, so yeah, there is a, there is a place for tough love, but fire and brimstone, I turned it down <coughs> a it not
1: now, Phil, I'm very proud to say that you are a mate of mine, so I apologise to anybody listening for the self-indulgence in this question, but I I know firsthand, Phil, you have a family life that a lot of people are jealous of. You and your wife, Leanne, absolutely adore each other. Tell me a bit about how Leanne makes your life better.
2: Um, look, I'm going to preface this answer just letting you and your listeners know that there's nothing sexy or attractive being married to someone who <laughs> has worked upwards of 70 hours a week it's not good <laughs> it, it really is as i sit back now not doing the job anymore um who would want to be married to someone who who is and it wasn't really that I needed to do the, these hours for, um, for, for, from an ego point of view. I had to work massive hours to get through the work and to really, I suppose, get a pass grade in, in, in the job as a principal. It's a difficult job, and I lacked a lot of capacity in management, and I made up for it in the time that I gave to community. So my my wife has put up with a hell of a lot and i've made incredible apologies particularly in the last 2 years and i'm trying to make up for it but 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 your question was about what um lee has done for me she's always been there she's always had my back and she's always understood that I've been out of my depth, and she's. I tell you what, if, if something goes wrong in my life, or if someone steps on my toes, um, Lee's in there. She's the one you want with you in uh, in the trench in warfare. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, Barnes, most of the time I did not tell Lee about many many of the difficult um, things I dealt with uh, uh, as a principal. Just some of the really difficult challenges I faced, particularly with parents and. Um, it, it's really hard, Burns. I mean, you may have a community where you've got 99% of the families on board ready to go, but 1% can take you down and they can wreck your week and they can wreck your home life. And um, as I say, most of the time I couldn't share it with Lee because if I did, she would have come in, boots and all, and torn the place down and dragged me out of the job and said that's it. So we're talking about a woman who loves me um
1: in good times and in bad, and she's always got my back. I love her dearly. Beautiful. I, I'm i glad you saved yourself. I thought you were going down a really slippery slope then when I asked you about your wife and you said there's nothing sexy. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: you, quick, you quickly turn that around, oh, which is probably good oh, for dear. you. <laughs> um, Barnes, I know this is a podcast
2: <laughs> and it's an audio. I tell you what, you could really enhance this program with just having a picture
1: <laughs> of <cypher>. It's beautiful. <laughs> Very nicely said. Now, let me ask you about your anxiety a little bit, Phil. Do you feel like chipping away bit by bit and taking on small improvements is enough to make your anxiety better? Or do you feel like you need to find huge inspiration, start a charity and do something massive?
2: Yeah, look, Hans, um, I I, I recently had to go to see a psychiatrist. I regularly see a psychologist. And the psychiatrist actually diagnosed me with a condition which I refused to accept however, I, I went home and I did research and I thought, oh my God that's me and I it, it, the I have ADHD and um, I, I, the other the, what I have with it is what's called imposter syndrome and, and it sounds <laughs> I almost want to laugh when I say it but if your listeners and indeed you want to look it up um, it's got these symptoms that go with it, and it, it's me. It is me. And so anxiety, it, it, it's, it's, it crushes me. So even coming in for this interview, Barnes, I, I didn't sleep last night. I didn't sleep the night before. Um, I woke up this morning feeling I was going for a really big job interview. Your listeners may think, oh, he sounds relaxed at the moment. Um I'm all still pent up, but I have this fantastic ability to mask things. Um, I got also upset, Barnes, when we were getting ready for this podcast because I, I, my, my computer wouldn't work. And you, you'll, you'll, of course, recall I held things up. I was incredibly embarrassed. I must have thought Barnes would be frustrated with me. And I kept thinking you'd think bad things. So, so it's a beast anxiety and, and it, it, it doesn't matter what anyone says. It, Oh Phil, it's okay. It's just a conversation. It doesn't matter. It it, it really gets you. But doing things like this interview, it, it's been so important for me. Like since my operation, I, I haven't done any any of this, um, anything like this. I've done nothing. I have not been in a school setting since this operation I had nearly two years ago. So, so is is it enough to just keep chipping away? It probably should be, but it's not for me, Barnes. I, Lee and I are commonly talking, particularly in the last few weeks, that we need to just be stepping out and doing more for others, and not just not not just doing things that come across okay, that, that we come across in our day to day. But we need to really make our stamp and do something substantial and uh, in, in helping others. It may well be um, working in, in charity work or whatever community work. It doesn't matter because I've, I've, I've always maintained, Barnes, that a- anyone who does charity work, and, and that's been an important part of my family life since I was a kid, anyone who does it, yes, they're helping others, but they're helping themselves too. And I'm not talking from an ego point of view, but there's this innate thing, I believe, in all human beings where there's this um, there's this need that we have to help others and, and, and there's no – greater way to do it than to just commit to uh, whether it's a a community project or whether it's a charity. um, Yes, you're helping yourself and indeed, of course, you're helping others at the same time. So um, I've got a long way to go, Barnes, but I am chipping away at it, but it's not enough for me just to be um, chipping away at it. It's it's incredibly frustrating because my, my capacity has gone from something that's been quite high to something really quite low.
1: Well, Phil, that was incredibly well put. And I don't mean to, pardon the French, but piss in your pocket, but that you should be really proud of yourself for expressing it the way you just did. What are some of the most important lessons you and Leanne have taught your children over the years?
2: Um,
1: I I, I think a lot of the lessons we
2: taught Barnes were, were accidental. And it was, the lessons came about because we had so many kids, like we had four kids under four, and it it was just chaotic. And you've got me racing up this ladder as a principal working these insane hours. Um, We didn't have a lot of time. I'm so embarrassed about the time I had for my kids, and I constantly apologise now, and I'm making up for lost, lost ground. But inadvertently we 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 taught our kids to be independent and and we we taught them um you know you've got to get out there and do your own thing we 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 have really instilled in them um, the importance of family and i credit that particularly to my wife because her her capacity to stay connected with our kids it's quite remarkable um I, i our children are adults adults now from 30 down to 28 31 down to 28 and it's um it's it's something that we're incredibly proud of um the way they just value family and and Lee connects with them in a way that they are I don't I shouldn't say like our friends because we still are parents but we Zoom regularly throughout this time of, of COVID um, and they're really good fun Zooms. The kids want to be there. Their partners want to be involved in it too. So we, we've, we've, we've succeeded. And as I say, particularly to Lee, with Lee's you know dogged tenacity to, um, to make sure that we're connected via Zoom or when COVID's not on, whether it's family picnics or whatever. Lee, Lee gets visibly upset if we don't connect on a regular basis and and if the kids can't do something, she actually calls them out really, really quickly. And um, <laughs> so, so so there are times our kids aren't perfect and, and sometimes they'll, they'll slide, but if you get called out by Lee, you know, if the, if the kids do, they, they jump. You know, they're, they're very forgiving kids, they're very affectionate kids and um, I know they've learned the affection of us, that, but to be able to say sorry for something's really important. Um, I'm I I I have a relationship with my mother, it's I've mentioned earlier, that's just so beautiful and affectionate now. In my entire life growing up, not once did my mother come to me and use the words I'm sorry. However, she did it in other ways. I could tell that she was, you know, remorseful if something happened or did something wrong and 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 i don't want to ever let on that i didn't have a lovely relationship with my mother i did but we we need affection and we need to be told we're loved and and i'm so proud that i have kids that that um are showing that and li- living a, a life outwardly where they're showing affection on a, on a daily basis and, and they've got this capacity to say, I'm sorry, not straight away. As I said, our kids are not perfect. They might take a few days, but there's never, ever been a time when our family has had a, a rift that's gone on for um, an extended period and I think that's just really something to be very, very proud
1: of. Yeah. Very lucky yeah. family, Phil. Very lucky yeah. family. You are an impressive home handyman. What's some of the work you've done that you're most proud of, that you've done yourself around your house?
2: Uh, as I know I keep mentioning Lee, but but she's the one who really gets me going. She, she gets these most incredibly creative ideas, and she says to me um, commonly, you can do it. You can do it. And if I can't, she finds a YouTube clip or something and says, "You can do it." She finds the resources and off she goes. And she, so, so it doesn't matter what it is, it, whatever I do, it's driven um, by Lee's creativity. But I, I'm, I, I think the, the things I love the most are things that end up being shared later. Like at the moment, right now, I've, I'm just working on a table. It's sort of like a breakfast bar sort of thing that my daughter Sam came up with the idea and. I'm, and Lee's come up with this great idea, so I'm really excited about the bench top on it that I found some old wood under the house. But what um, I'm excited about is that it'll be a table, and I think tables are really powerful for connecting um, us. And this particular table, interestingly, Barnes, it's not a table that you sit around, it's one that you sit up to and you sit alongside. And, and I've always valued um, conversation. With people that you're not really close to, but when when you talk side by side, conversation flows a lot better and it's a great great strategy that dads can use, particularly with their sons um, and I'm being now, i'm g- generalizing here of course this is just as effective for girls too but generally speaking there are many many um, young men and boys out there who, who, who find it hard to talk and and side by side conversation is much better than looking someone in the eye that's quite confronting for some people so this breakfast bar is side by side just a lo- lovely view we're looking out so um they're, they're the sorts of projects i'm really proud of Barnes. the ones that just result in you know, just just better things and better connectedness for us as a family. It sounds tremendous. Can't wait to show you, mate. <laughs> I
1: look forward yeah. to it. Do you feel like just setting a good example today as a grown man is enough to make you proud of yourself?
2: Look, I mentioned this a, l- a little bit earlier. Um, it's not. It, it, it's so important, Barnes. It's so important to be good and um, like you if you're walking down to the shops, you see something or someone's got to do something about it, that's vital. That's the general day-to-day stuff and it, it is absolutely critical that we do that and it's critical that we teach our kids the importance of that and, and, and indeed, teaching our kids the importance of it, do it, but do not you don't have to tell everyone about it. And I, isn't it beautiful when you find out someone's done something but they haven't blown their own trumpet? It's just something you might find out a week later Um I, I think though Barnes, in answering your question that there, there's this deep need within all of us um, it it's called purpose effectively and and in finding that purpose and what Lee and I are looking for at the moment is um is is just the way we can give um more to our community in in, in perhaps it perhaps is a more formal and structured way. Um, I don't know what that is yet, but um over the coming weeks, I'm sure that 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 will evolve because. It, that, that's been, as I said, such an important part of my life growing up, and it was such an important part of my life um, prior to this operation I had two years ago.
1: Well, Phil Ledlin, I thank you so much for coming on Everyday Greatness, and I feel privileged to have sat here and heard some of your nuggets of wisdom. So thank you for joining me. Thanks, Barnes. Thank you to Phil, and thank you to Renu. Thank you all for listening Thank you to the ARA group for being our major sponsor for the fourth year in a row. Thank you to Look Studio Australia for recording this podcast. And I hope that when you put your head when you put your device down in a little while, you lift your head up, push your shoulders back, and walk down the street proud of being an everyday Joe bag of donuts. This is our final episode for season four, but it doesn't mean the conversation has ended. Everyday Greatness is a show designed to help people realize there is greatness in being in everyday Harry Sacker roles. So if you know someone who's doing extraordinary things in their ordinary life, please get in touch on social media through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or LinkedIn, or go to our website, everydaygreatness.com.au. I really hope you got something out of these interviews with some incredible people this season. I hope you can join us next season. If you'd like to find out more about Everyday Greatness, go to our website or our social media pages. But thank you again for today and thank you for listening all season.